0: uh, I just want to make a few comments just to the dads, okay? I think one of the very best gifts that we can give to our children as dads is to fulfill uh, 1 Peter 3, 7, which says husbands in the same way, and and, in the same way refers to in the same way that Jesus was submissive to the plan of God and went to the cross for us, in the same way, Live with your wives in an understanding way. It doesn't say understand your wives. It does say, don't get too tickled over that. It, it does say that uh, you, you will listen, you will be there, you will be attentive, you will try to put yourself in, in her shoes and understand things from her perspective. So live with your wife your wives in an understanding way. And then it continues, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman. And the point there is not that she is weak. It is a comparative. And the idea is this. She is in, if the husband is the one whom God holds responsible as the head of the home, the wife is in a position of relative vulnerability. Do not abuse that. It is a weaker position. So, because she is in that role, you exercise your headship of the home in a way that honors God and lifts her up because the, the verse continues, as a fellow heir of the grace of Christ, give her honor as, a fellow, heir, as a, grace of, a fellow heir of the grace of Christ. And the assumption is that she, of course, you're marrying a believer. She's a fellow heir of the grace of Christ. But the idea here is that you are publicly and privately building her up. I think that's the greatest thing that a dad can do for his children is to build up their mother and to live with your wife in an understanding way, grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of Christ. So you honor her privately and publicly. And then he says, and by the way, If you don't do this, if you abuse her, don't bother coming to me, lest your prayers be hindered. I don't want to hear. (laughs) So, gentlemen, that's the very best advice that I can offer to all of us as husbands. uh, To live with your wife in an understanding way. As with a weaker vessel, since she's a woman. And grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of Christ, lest your prayers be hindered. So, uh... Happy Father's Day, I hope that is an encouragement to you, because to me, it's a a challenge uh, to all of us. Now, what does that have to do with the sermon? Absolutely nothing. But uh, it's something that's been uh, been on my mind. Every time I um, do premarital counseling for a wedding, I require the men to memorize that verse. And yes, the ladies have their own verses uh, to, to memorize as well. So... Father, we give you thanks, and we ask that as we open your word now, your spirit would be our teacher. Thank you, Father, for uh, dads, and we thank you, Lord, for being our father. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, probably the most predictable words I will say today. The section we've just been covering in Romans chapter 9, which focuses so strongly on the sovereignty of God, uh, has been called the most difficult section of the Bible. Some have called it the pastor's graveyard. It's really not. It's, It's just that our default is that we want a God that is less than God is. Our default is we want a God who is manageable. Tozer wrote, quote, left to ourselves, we tend to immediately reduce God to manageable terms. We want to get him to where we can use him or at least know where he is when we need him. We want a God we can in some measure control. I think he's right. I, I think that's the default position of my sin nature is to exalt myself and my free will and diminish God's sovereignty. Well, Romans 9 won't let that happen. But that leaves us with a challenge that we have been looking at and we studied last Sunday, how God's sovereignty and 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 men's free will fit together. We talked about this last Sunday. It's yes, it's a theological issue, but it's also an emotional issue because it has to do with what kind of God do we serve? What, What kind of God do we belong to? So, in 1884, uh, a mathematician named Edwin Abbott wrote a, a, uh, a tongue-in-cheek book. It was a book of social satire. He was a mathematician, and his book was entitled Flatland. It was about a two-dimensional world, flatland, right? A two-dimensional world. It was populated by triangles, by polygons, by squares, by uh, rectangles, by parallelograms. Uh, but there was a lower class individual that populated Flatland, and they were called Line Landers because they were one dimensional beings. They they were pathetic. They could only go from this point to that point, and from that point to this point, and this point. But they're just back and forth. They were line. I mean, you know, they were Line Landers. They had length but no depth. They couldn't combine into squares and triangles because hey, they were just one line. Zzz, zzz, that's it there was a square in flatland who wanted to convince the linelanders that there was more to reality that the world was bigger than just length they tried to kill him so he just moved out of the line so they couldn't see him anymore but he felt it was so sad they just didn't get it but then one day There in Flatland, the square who had tried to convince the line landers that there was more reality, that that square was observing his plane, and all of a sudden there was a dot that appeared out of nowhere, just a dot. And then the dot grew into a line equidistant. And then it receded. And then disappeared, diminished. So this, what was that? This thing that just appeared and went zzzz. Zit, gone well a sphere had passed through flatland and the dot touched and then it grew large and then it receded and then it disappeared see there's more to reality than just what we can conceive that we can picture the square could in, could not could intellectually accept that reality was beyond his mental abilities, but he couldn't grasp what it it was. He had to take the reality of the sphere on faith. Now, Gary, thank you so much for the math lesson. All right. You and I have the capacity to understand spheres. We have the capacity to understand three dimensions. We can experience that. We feel sorry for the square. He doesn't get the sphere thing. But here's the deal. A biblical worldview commits you, and I've said this many times to you, a biblical worldview commits you to a view of reality that is larger than your ability to explain everything that it contains, right? A biblical worldview commits you to a view of reality that is larger than your ability to explain everything that it contains, um, than everything that you can perceive. I, there's, a, there's an interesting passage in... Uh, Second King. let me just read this to you, where the king of Aram is about to war against Israel, and Elisha is the prophet of God, who is his spokesman, and the servant of Elisha sees the, the chariots and the horses of the king of Aram surrounding Jerusalem, and the servant says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So Elisha answered, Do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And the servants looking around. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There's more to reality than what we can see. A biblical worldview commits you to a view of reality that's larger than your ability to explain everything that it contains. One day, our limitations from the fall will be removed. We'll no longer see through a glass darkly, but then we will see fully. We will know fully even as we are fully known. Uh, Scripture refers to things which the eye has not seen nor ear has heard, which have not entered into the heart of man, what God has prepared for those who love him. But there are things that my mind will never understand. If we understood everything about God exhaustively, then we would be God, right? Uh, There are things about the eternal communion that exists within the Trinity that we will never understand, even in heaven, because in heaven we're not going to become infinite beings, But our understanding or our lack of understanding will be absorbed into God's glory. That's why Romans 11 closes this whole section with an explosion of praise and wonder. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways for from him and to him, through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. That's why it ends that way. But you know what? I'm getting way, way ahead of myself. When we come to Romans chapter 10, some things become clearer. There's another side to the coin of God's sovereignty in salvation, and that other side has to do with our deep desire for the lost to be saved. Take a look at chapter 10, Romans chapter 10. We're going to start reading with verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness that's based upon the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, so Paul makes the point that zeal is a good thing, but. You can't have zeal without knowledge, and that's not a good thing. Zeal without biblical truth is just emotionalism or fanaticism. I want to point out three strong contrasts in our text, and I'm going to be able to finish two of them today, and we're going to return to this passage next Sunday. This is a to-be-continued study. Before we take off into chapter 11, the runway is in chapter 10. The runway is chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. And there's a contrast here. Israel and the law on the one hand versus the Gentiles and faith on the other. What am I talking about? Let's take a look at it. Chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written. Behold I lay in Zion a stone a stone of stumbling. And a rock of offense. And he who believes in him. Will not be disappointed. He who believes in him. Will not be disappointed. That's the same verse that's quoted in verse 11. Of chapter 10. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Israel, and not every Jew, but collectively as a nation, Israel rejected Christ because of their misplaced legalism. They had wonderful advantages. In fact, if you'll flip back to chapter 3, then what advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. If you look just back one chapter, chapter 9, verse 4, the Israelites to whom belongs, what? The adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, whose are the fathers, from whom is the Messiah according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. Wonderful advantages to being a Jew, but their privileges became a stumbling stone. And Paul reiterates a point that he's made earlier, The Jews failed to achieve the righteousness of God by works of the law. Turn back to chapter 3 for just a moment. Chapter 3, verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So the astonishing thing is that the Jews failed to achieve the righteousness of God by the works of the law. But the Gentiles obtained that righteousness, not by works, but by faith. Look at, again, chapter 9, verse 33. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That's the same Old Testament quotation that we're going to see in verse 11, as I mentioned a moment ago. So first, there's this contrast between Israel and the Gentiles. Here's the deal. If you open that up, if you unwrap that, it's all—it's really a contrast by being saved by law as opposed by, to being saved by faith. And if you open that up further, it's a contrast between being saved by works and being saved by grace. Our default, as I said before, our default is to want to earn salvation by our own efforts. And, and if you're a, a visitor here, maybe you're here for the first time, please. First of all, I'm so glad you're here. But let me, let me say this. We cannot rescue ourselves from the penalty of our own sins by our own efforts. Salvation is a gift of God. It's a gift to be received with empty hands. But Gary, I'm sincere in my belief. Doesn't God count sincerity? No. No. Not if you sincerely believe the wrong thing. Here's the second contrast. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Zeal with knowledge versus zeal without knowledge. Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Now, no matter how sincere, how fervent, or how zealous you are, Sincerity does not save. He says, my heart's desire for them, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. The term heart's desire is a Greek word that means the heart is to be full of goodwill towards them. I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that idea later. My heart is just filled with goodwill towards them, and that goodwill results in My prayer is for their salvation. I want you to notice two things. There are two big implications here. First of all, notice the standing of the Jews. They have not attained salvation on their own terms. Secondly, if anyone could be saved by works or by fervency or by zeal, it would be the Jews, and Exhibit A is Saul of Tarsus. The sad thing is that they think that they are saved, but they are horribly wrong. They believe, but they believe the wrong thing. It's not according to knowledge. So we're going to expand on that in just a moment. But I also want you to notice the passion of Paul. And this is, this is one of those things that's easy to pass by, but it should become huge to us. This idea of this heart filled with goodwill towards the Jews. Why? It's because they had always treated him wonderfully, right? Well, not exactly. The book of Romans was written from Corinth on Paul's third missionary journey. Let's backtrack a little bit into Paul's background with the Jews. Because the statement that he makes here needs to be understood in the context of his life and his ministry over, actually, decades. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. And we're going, to, we're going to spend a few moments here in the book of Acts developing what this context looks like. In Acts chapter 8, we see the fury, the zeal, if you will, of Saul of Tarsus. Stephen has just been executed. In verse 1, we read, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Verse 2 mentions that Stephen was buried, but look at verse 3. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women he put them in prison, and, and, and the, the, the terms here are very forceful, Describe in a very pictographic way, how he would grab them. The word is sometimes used of grabbing somebody by the hair and pulling them. Men and women ravaging the church. I've mentioned this to you before. The, the, the word for ravaging is a, is a word that's used in the Psalms uh, uh, to translate a Hebrew word of a boar that is ravaging through a vineyard. It's used in classical Greek of torturing someone. It's used in, uh, in other texts of, a, of a, a predator who has his prey cornered, and the prey is quivering and still alive, but the, the predator does not wait for the prey to die before he begins to eat. That's the word that's used to describe what Saul of Tarsus did to the church. Chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. Now, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, you you get the picture of Saul of Tarsus. However, on that road to Damascus, God miraculously saved this man. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And then his world turned upside down. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And at that split instant, Saul of Tarsus realized that everything he believed was wrong. And that everything that the Christian that he'd been persecuting was right. He probably thought in that moment, I'm a dead man. But God had different plans for him. In fact, he says to Ananias later, I'm going to show him how much you will suffer for my name's sake. Saul of Tarsus became a Christian apologist. The first place was in Damascus. Now I want you to notice this. Look at chapter 9, verse 19. He took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Remember, this is where these are the people he's going to kill. He's going to drag back to Jerusalem and torture. Verse 20, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who was in Jerusalem, who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing the bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had elapsed, The Jews plotted together to do away with him. How were they going to do that? That's called assassination, friends. Look at verse 29. Uh, Verse 28, rather. Uh, I'm sorry, that was in Damascus. Verse 28, now he's in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. Verse 28, and he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord, And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. There it is again. Verse 30, But when the brethren learned of of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And there he stayed for roughly six years until we see him uh, later on in Acts chapter 11. So Saul of Tarsus gets saved. Boom, assassination plot. Boom, assassination plot damascus jerusalem the jews are trying to kill him first missionary journey years later acts chapter 13 they're in the city of iconium acts chapter 13 are you there with me let's take a look at verse 44 acts chapter 13 verse 44 the next sabbath nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the lord But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Look down at verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So Antioch, they drive them out of town. They go to Iconium. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. But the Jews who disbelieved, stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. So they stirred them up, and, and actually, if you look down in verse 5, and an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them. So, hope you're getting the picture. Stirred them up, embittered them, attempted to stone them, and they had to flee the city. Okay, where did they go? They went to Lystra. Look at uh, chapter 14, verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. That's just the first journey. Let's look at the second journey, because that's in chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 5. Paul's at Thessalonica, and we read, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all acted contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they'd received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. He got a better, they got a better reception at Berea. But look at uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. So, okay. Eventually he had to leave by ship. Chapter 18, they came to Corinth. Chapter 18, verse 12. But while Galileo was a proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat saying this man persuades men to worship god contrary to the law and they're very very vague about that what they mean is the law of moses that's what they think but they don't say the law of moses they want Gallio, who's new to the office to think the law of the romans Gallio was too smart he was having nothing to do uh with 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 their plan uh so uh they, but they dragged them before the authorities. Look at chapter 20. They went down to Greece, chapter 20, verse 3. And he spent three months when a plot was formed against him by the Jews. He was about to set sail for Syria and he decided to return through Macedonia. So there's another, uh, a, a presumably another assassination plot. Now, that's just up to the time when he wrote the book of Romans. And there's more. Look at chapter 23. At this point, Paul wrote Romans, but later on, in chapter 23, look at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though... You were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near this place. That was foiled two years later, chapter 25, verse 1. Festus, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. you get in the picture here. These are the people that Paul is saying... Oh, are, are, you, are you still in Acts? Go over to Romans again. Chapter 9. This time... Romans 9. Look at verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites. And then he goes to the verses I read to you before, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory, the covenants, giving of the law, temple service, promises, whose are the fathers, from whom is the Messiah according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. How could Paul say that? Oh, well, he was the apostle to the Jews, right? No. That was Peter. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. But do you see his heart here? Would, would you be able to look into a mirror and say, I have the same heart of compassion and longing for the salvation of those who mistreat me like this? Does that just stun you? So, that's why in verse 1, my heart's desire my, of chapter 10, My heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So they have zeal. Hey, wait a minute. Don't pastors want people who are on fire? Zealous? Sometimes I think we admire zeal, which we assume is connected to being spiritual, More than we admire knowledge, which we assume is connected to being cold and unemotional. (laughs) But first of all, that's just a false dichotomy. We're to have both zeal and truth and knowledge. And, And there is a priority here. Knowledge is the foundation for zeal. It trumps zeal. The Ephesians needed some zeal. But Paul doesn't chastise them. The Galatians had all kinds of zeal. But Paul denounces them for being doctrinally weak. They needed knowledge of the truth. And let me mention one more thing here. Zeal is not the same, or I'm sorry, godly zeal is not the same as emotionalism. In Malachi 2.13, we read, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning. They were getting all kinds of emotional in, in worship service. But then he then God indicts them and explains His judgment upon them. Yeah, they were emotional. The most emotionally hyped church in the New Testament was Corinth. They came out of what was called the mystery religions tradition. If you read about the, the, the uh, uh, worship that took place in the city of Corinth and in, in the Macedonian regions, um, it, it was considered spiritual to let yourself go. The Greek word for stand... or or be stable, is the word stasis. And to lose stability, to lose control of yourself, to stand outside yourself was ecstasis, ecstasy. Paul's point to the Corinthians was that ecstasis is not spiritual. God's plan is for zeal according to knowledge. The truth of the gospel should move us to awe and to thankfulness and love. But the Jews had zeal that was not according to knowledge. Did they have the wrong information? No, not really. They took the right information and twisted it to say what they wanted it to say. They knew about God because God had revealed himself. But the point here in these verses, and in if you go back to Romans 2, Through four, those uh, three chapters, is that justification by grace through faith is embedded all through the Old Testament. That means a relationship with God through through faith in Jesus is God's plan. And the Jews knew about God, but they had no relationship with him. Verse 3 says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Salvation... Is all or nothing. Either you've received God's righteousness or you have not. If you're trying to establish salvation by your own righteousness, if you're trying to earn your way into heaven, then you're not. There is no salvation spectrum. There's no sliding scale. There are no gradations of being saved where you're almost there. This is... There is a changing spectrum of knowing about him. We grow in our knowledge about him, but we're involved in that pursuit. Knowing about him comes from our direction where we study the word. We get to know him. We walk with him. But knowing him comes from his direction. It's a matter of receiving his righteousness by faith. People who are zealous for good works are pursuing man-centered righteousness that I can attain. For these people, the gospel is not good news. Because it means letting go of trying to save themselves, which means letting go of their pride. Remember Romans chapter 3? Where is boasting? It is excluded. By the way, as, as I'm going through all this, are you seeing the interconnectedness of all these themes that wind their way through this book? It's rather, it, it's just astonishing. But the point here is man-centered righteousness and God-centered righteousness are, are not different degrees of the same thing. They're different universes. Verse 3 says they establish their own righteousness. That means that I am the one picking and choosing what I think God should or shouldn't include in his plan. And what that means is I create God in my own image. By contrast, look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of righteousness for everyone who believes. The Greek word for end is telos. We, some of you are familiar with the word teleology. And it's emphatic. And what it, 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 it means either goal or fulfillment or both. The meanings are kind of hard to separate. One refers to filling and the other refers to fulfilling. Uh, and, and the first means filling the law in the sense that because we're in Christ, his perfect obedience his perfect obedience to the law made, uh, made the law complete. It is finished. Hebrews 10, for example, describes how Christ completed the sacrificial system. Christ's work makes all legalism irrelevant. He completed it. He filled it up. The other meaning of end, Christ is the end of the law, is not just filling but fulfilling the law. Christ was the end of the law in the sense that he came to fulfill it. Matthew 5 do not think I, think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Christ satisfied all the demands of Christ of God's law. Now, because he satisfied all the demands of God's law, if you are in Christ, you too have that satisfaction. You too are under grace. You are no longer under law, but under grace. Okay. Now, this is to be continued next week. I want to nail down two points. First... We are saved by grace through faith. We're going to move down towards verse nine. This is where we're headed. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That's where we're going. The Jews had a hard time with faith, the faith principle. That's what Paul has been arguing so hard for in Romans four about how Abraham was saved by faith. By the way, where is the faith chapter in the New Testament? The faith chapter. Where, Hebrews, Hebrews eleven. What, Hebrews, mm-hmm. to the Jews, Hebrews, eleven. But this is also true, not just for the Jews. It's true for us. We have a hard time letting go of a desire to, to save ourselves. Somehow we assume that God is is, is is it grades on the curve, and and we want to quantify the good and the bad. And if we end up with fifty six percent. God's going to let us into heaven. That is Satan's lie. Let's say that your car stalled in traffic and you had to abandon it on the side of the road one out of every three days. But hey, you know, it worked two out of three times. So really nothing to complain about, right? You'd you'd still call it reliable, right? Because it's 66% righteous. Or your refrigerator stops working four days out of the month. But it's only four days. It works the rest of the other 26 days of the month. That's 87% righteous. That's reliable, right? Or if you missed two mortgage payments, I'm sure the bank would say, you know, that's 83% righteous. That's pretty good. No, it just doesn't work that way. The Jews were zealous for good works, channel through fulfilling the law. Maybe for us it might be through doing good works to our neighbors or giving to United Way or some other worthy goal. The issue is not whether or not we have good works. The issue is whether or not they count. Whether or not our zeal is according to knowledge based on faith in Jesus Christ. And and the second thing I want to, to leave with. So first, we're saved by grace through faith. And that's the point. Second, the second point I want to close with is Paul's passion for the lost. Where does his passion for the lost lead him in verse 1? It leads him to pray, to pray for the people that he wants to be saved. The first question that we ask every week in our growth groups this past year, actually for a year and a half, I think now, is this. Have you had an opportunity to share Christ this week? How did it go? What would you do differently? You really get some interesting discussions going from that. Do you ever feel inadequate or unprepared or awkward in sharing the gospel? Who doesn't? Do you find it strange that God sent Peter to the Jews, this unpolished Galilean redneck? And the guy who had all the Jewish credentials... He sends to the Gentiles. It's because neither one of them could depend upon their backgrounds for anything eternal that God did through them. That at least was one of the results. <laughs> and the whole point is, it, whenever you share the gospel, you can never say, I did this. It's God who does this. It doesn't depend upon you. It's God working through you to touch that person's heart. And let me suggest that if anyone had a good cause not to want to share Christ with an enemy, it was the one man in history who persecuted Christians more than anybody else, who was then persecuted by the Jews more than anybody else. And that was Saul of Tarsus. But his passion was for their salvation. Why? Because Paul was looking in a mirror. When he saw them, he saw Saul of Tarsus. He saw zeal but not according to knowledge. He saw a guy outpacing all his Pharisaic contemporaries who was horribly lost. So, do you see yourself without Christ, and does that affect your love and concern for the lost? Are you sharing Christ with those around you? Are you praying for those whom you want to be saved? Because if, here's, here's the truth that we want to share with them. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Father, we thank